Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Philosophy of Fitness podcast, episode number 49. My name is Haley. I'm going to be your host today, and every single day that you are tuning in, my friends, I have such an exciting episode that I am so, so excited to share with you guys. Today, I sat down with Chef Nikki from Hell's Kitchen. She was on this previous season of Hell's Kitchen, and for those of you that don't know, Hell's Kitchen is one of my favorite shows, but I was really struck by her journey through what I had seen on the show and just how she was frazzed at the beginning, but she was really just calm and collected and how mature she was through the whole thing and just how she handled herself, I thought was so inspiring. You know, I think that being a chef, I can't really speak for personal experience, but it seems like probably one of the most stressful environments on the face of the planet to potentially be in. And she handled it so freaking well. And, you know, we had such an incredible conversation just about her her experience, her background. I learned so much about her, even the different career path that she was heading on before she uh, became a chef was was really interesting and eye opening and and just the importance of speaking up for yourself and being an advocate for yourself. I mean, we covered so much. We really, when I tell you we dove deep, like we went deep. We really just talked about it all. Um, she's amazing. I just we had such an incredible, you know chat with each other and I'm, I'm so excited to share it with you guys. So if you want to hear even to a little bit about the behind the scenes of, of Hell's Kitchen and that whole experience of the whirlwind of, of being on television as well and sort of the repercussions of that, then you're definitely, definitely going to love this episode. Stress management is a huge thing that we dive into and and just learning how to, to really stay firm in, in who you are and grounded in who you are no matter what life throws at you. So like I said, we dive into it all. We cover it all. At this point, you know what to do. If you are interested in hearing our conversation, her story, her background, everything, then you know what to do, my friends. Go ahead and stay tuned. Today, I'm joined with Nikki from Hell's Kitchen. Nikki, welcome. I am so excited to have you on. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. This is actually the first podcast that I've done since uh, since filming the show. So oh, I'm super wow. busy. So people ask me and I'm like, I'll try, I'll try, but it's insane because obviously I'm still working as a chef. So schedules are insane. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Hey, I'm honored to, uh, to be the first one since then. So yeah, I'm sure yeah, that must be an inaugural event. <laughs> yeah. That must've been, um, such a crazy whirlwind for you. And we're obviously going to, you know, dive into all that, but I think before we even get into the whole hell's kitchen thing and, and kind of what you're up to now, I'm so curious about, you know, your story and uh, for everyone listening, actually, she's from New Hampshire, and I went to school a couple towns over from from where you're from. So mm. I'm really curious to hear about, you know, your upbringing and what kind of led you down this path of uh, becoming a chef. So I actually wasn't born in New Hampshire. I moved to New Hampshire when I was 10, I think, if I remember correctly. I was born in Plymouth, Massachusetts, and we lived there through my whole childhood. And it was, you know, my mom was really young, so we sort of moved around a lot and everything was crazy for the first you know, 10 years of my life. Then we moved to New Hampshire and finally sort of got settled down. And um, I was living in a town near Wolfboro for a little while, went to elementary school. And then as soon as I got into high school, I went to Kingswood, which is the high school in Wolfboro, New Hampshire. And, you know, that's where I met all my friends. And when I, I moved out of my mom's house when I was 17 and I moved into Wolfboro and I, I didn't leave until uh, this past year when I moved to New York. So I started working um, right out of high school in a, a mental health facility, uh, which I won't name because I don't know if I'm allowed to because they're closed now. 
but <laughs> okay. Um, so I think if you watch the show, you see, um, I have this conversation with Chef Ramsey right at the very beginning. He's like, how long have you been cooking? And I'm like, two years. <laughs> and he's like, oh, okay, really? And I, you know, I had a full career prior to that. Um, I was a brain injury specialist for seven years and I was working with people with uh, developmental disabilities, traumatic brain injury um, and other mental illnesses in sort of a closed facility for a number of years prior to that. And then I started working for a nonprofit organization that was new to New Hampshire. It was a Massachusetts company that came in and they were sort of trying to build group homes and, and have that resource in New Hampshire as well. But because it was a nonprofit, I wasn't making a lot of money. Uh, still needed to pay the rent. So I had a couple of friends who worked at a restaurant in Wolfboro and uh, they kept saying, just come in and be a prep cook. It'll be easy. No big deal. And I was like, you know what? Fine. After a couple of months, I finally did it. Uh, my friend Noah always gave me a hard time because it took me like three months. I'm such a procrastinator. No, me too. <laughs> so I finally, I finally applied. I talked to the chef, you know, and I had been running cooking groups and stuff. I'd always loved cooking, always cooking for my family, running cooking groups in the group homes for because we did life skills training, you know, so people, when they get a traumatic brain injury, there's a lot that needs to be retaught. And obviously feeding yourself is very important. That was one of those things. And I had always taken the lead in that. So I knew that I had some kind of passion in me about that. And I was like, sure, I'll go work in a kitchen. So I started at the Wolf's Tavern, which is sort of the flagship restaurant of Wolfboro. It's right on Lake Winnipesaukee. Lots of people at weddings there, you know, lots of the girls that I went to high school with got married there. Um, and I started as a prep cook and it, I think it was like three days in, I was like, uh Oh, <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. <laughs> I can't yeah. leave. And, you know, long story short, I ended up basically quitting quote unquote, my whole career that I had set up for myself. You know, I wanted to become a clinician. I wanted to go back to school and, you know, do psychiatry full time, but I had been doing it since I was 18 and I was I think 22 at the time or something like that and I was already sort of burnt out on it it's mentally exhausting um, which is why I was so interested in talking to you because sort of the basis of your podcast is about uh, you know burnout is a big topic in that you know what I mean keeping yourself healthy and making sure that you're taking care of your body and your mind as you're going through your life especially when you've chosen to be a career woman which is sort of the path that I've taken I give my all to, to the industries that I've chosen and, you know, realizing that at such a young age, at such a short way into my career that it wasn't for me, um, I think was very telling. And the fact that I felt so strongly about giving it all up and taking a $14 an hour job as a prep book, um, I sort of just, I, I followed that path and with a lot of resilience, everybody was saying, no, you're, you know, you've already been doing this for so long. You've established yourself. You're on the right path. And I was like, mm -mm, I like it. I want to cook. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's so crazy. I had no idea about, you know, your mental health background too, with that other job. Um, yeah. but there's, there's so much to unpack from what you said, but I think one of the biggest things that stands out to me is just something that I'm very passionate about too, is just normalizing, switching our career paths, right? Like yeah. we get so set in thinking that we have to do one thing. I mean, for me, I was set on a corporate path. I went to school for English and communications and mm -hmm. thought I was going to, you know, live that. And I was only in that for maybe four months, five months and I quit. And it was the same thing like you, I was like, this is not for me. And right. I took the it's risk too. So I, yeah. I think that that's so awesome that you did that. And I think for people, especially young people, you know, coming out of high school, going into their first few years of college, 
you're you're made to make really major life decisions in terms of what your career is going to be for the rest of your life when you're not your brain's not even completely developed yet. And I think that normalizing changing your mind or, or reserving the right to change your mind at any time is important. And I think that our generation sort of leading the way or paving the way in terms of doing that, where we can put our foot down and say, no, I know myself and I know what I want and I know it's healthy for me and I'm going to make this switch. But there certainly is a lot of pressure to, um, you know, to, to stick to your guns and <laughs> grin and bear it through, you know, a career that isn't really for you. And I, I wish that that would be more discouraged. Um, and I think it is. Yeah, for sure. I think now, especially with our generation, like you said, I've noticed at least you know, in my parents' generation, I don't know about yours, but it wasn't so much accepted to to have a major career switch when you're like 24 oh, yeah. years old. Like that was not something that a lot of people did, but no, they're, they're like, pick it and stick to it. And that's yeah. it. Like you're stuck with it now. Like you're a lawyer for 50 years. That's it. You know, like right. that, that it was the trajectory for a lot of people. And um, it's so inspiring to see people like you, like, I didn't even know that, that you had switched that path, but even to just stick with it, you know, I think that trusting it too for a long time is is a big part of it too is to not give up on it like if you feel like you felt within those first few days of being a line cook like something lit up within you that you were like okay I need to explore this like you got to give that time and and explore it and I was definitely fortunate to have sort of the luxury of doing that as well I I honestly can't remember that far back to what made it seem okay to me to take a lower paying job and like do that full time I'm grateful that it was able to happen. And I know a lot of people sort of get stuck in that trap of, you know, I have this good job. If I decide to change my career, I'm going to be entry level again. I'll have to climb the ladder again. And I think being so young uh, when this all happened, I was really fortunate to to have that option. And I think that even speaks to the point of do it while you're young. If you're, you know, 18 to 30 years old, you have the option to sort of seek out these opportunities and feel everything out and pick what really speaks to you. Like you were saying, if it lights that little passion in you, then you hold onto it for dear life because, you know, if you're going to choose something to do for the next 50 years, shouldn't you love it? <laughs> yeah. And that makes me think too about what you said. And it is crazy to think about how there's such an expectation when we're 17 to pick your major for college and then you can't even change it once you're in. It's like, right. How are you expected to know the whole trajectory of the next 40 or 50 years of your life when, like you said, you're not even developed yet? It's, Right. Crazy. It's it's wild. And, you know, just not even, I don't even want to go into the topic of student debt, but to that (laughs) that much at risk, I think at this point, it's just going to college is is a higher risk than it ever was because you're making a really profound life decision at a really young age for a lot of money that is going to follow you around, you know, for a certain amount of years, depending on your situation. So it's a lot of pressure for, for any young person. And I think Again, that's why I think I encourage and I think that our peers and our parents should encourage people to explore and get into the workforce when you're younger, even prior to going to college. So you have a little bit of background and experience to base your decision off of, you know, a lot of these kids going to college have not even had a job yet. Yeah, <laughs> they don't know what they like. Exactly. I was, I was one of those kids. Like, I'll admit it, you know, I had no idea what I wanted. I went in undeclared. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll do this. You know, this, this seems like it would be okay. I'm a decent writer and I'll just, you know, see where it takes me. And I think it's true. If we, if we took some time, like, like a gap year, essentially between high school right. and college to just explore around, I think that would help so many people. And absolutely. even now I know so many people that have completely switched their career path that oh, yeah. are in our age group for sure. 
a lot of my friends who have, I mean, degrees, even master's degrees in things that they were interested in, they went right into college, they went right from their college to their master's program and, and didn't really enter the workforce and, you know, fully explore the real life version of what they were learning in school. They started doing that and then they went, uh oh, I don't, I don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> and that must be it. Like, I haven't had that experience because I didn't, I only, I did a little bit of college, ran out of money, moved on. Um, and fortunately, the culinary career doesn't necessarily require that degree. It's good to have and it's a good background to have. But I can't imagine the, the stress and the pressure and the internal struggle of going, oh my God, I just spent eight years of my life yeah. learning this. And now I have to tell everybody I don't want to do it anymore. You know, would you continue doing it and sort of be a little bit miserable or choose a different career and sort of face the the judgment of the people around you and the judgment of yourself saying, you know, I stuck, I wanted to stick to this and I just couldn't do it. It's, it, there's a lot of like internal struggle that happens with that. And I, I feel for those people, you know, who end up in that position. Oh, for sure. It's a huge struggle. And I can't even relate to the people, like you said, that have had masters or even gone on to be in their thirties and then have that epiphany of this isn't working for me anymore. But yeah, I think a lot of it comes down to just being comfortable with taking a risk, you know, is, is right. stepping into that unknown and, and embracing it as scary as it is. And clearly embracing that risk has worked out for you, you know, amazingly. Like I watched you on Hell's Kitchen and I, even your transformation of just how you were at the beginning to, as you advanced through the competition, you were. It was crazy for me to watch too. Yeah. I, I mean, granted I saw it, that was filmed two and a half years ago now. Wow. No way. Yeah. So I'm even further, I'm further into my career. I'm an executive chef now. I've moved on and everything. So when I finally saw the show, I looked at, so when I, first of all, I didn't like put my name out there for the show. They literally messaged me on Facebook. Oh, no way. Out of nowhere. I'm like, I don't know how you found me. Am I getting kidnapped? Please tell me. <laughs> They're like, do you want to come to LA? I'm like, are you selling me into human trafficking? Yeah. I don't know. And um, my mom, of all people, she was like, just answer, just, you know, say, see what it is, you never know. And it turned out to be completely legitimate. And I'm wondering this whole time as I'm going through the process, we go to Los Angeles for a week for interviews and, you know, we have to see a doctor and talk to a psychiatrist and do oh all this. It was, they're really thorough with vetting the people who are on their staff but the whole time I'm sitting there and I'm like how did they find me like why me little Nikki two years of experience from the middle of nowhere New Hampshire I still have no idea that will remain a permanent mystery <laughs> to me but I also had never seen the show before oh wow so I, and I deliberately didn't watch the show before I went in because I know myself I'm very analytical I'm an overthinker I didn't want to walk in with any preconceived notions that would like mess with my mind more than my mind would be deliberately messed with by yeah. the show itself. So I didn't realize that I was going to walk in and be this little baby basically compared to everybody around me had, you know, 10, 15, 20 years experience. So that first dinner service where I like, I just started crying. I was like, he's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, I can't, I can't keep it together, you know? But after that day, and I sort of had that moment, you have to make a decision at some point to say, am I going to do this or am I not going to do this? Am I going to follow through or not? And I pride myself in saying yes to every opportunity I possibly can, because frankly, you know, I come from a 
place and a background that didn't have a lot of opportunity. And as I got older and my ambition grew, I started to realize these opportunities are going to be few and far between. And I need to just say yes to every single thing that I can, you know, I want that life experience and I want to have, like we were talking about before, I want to have options, you know, and know where I can go. So after that dinner service, I was like, I'm not quitting. I'm not going to cry ever again on this show. And I'm going to barrel through it. Like, and that's just the way it's going to (laughs) be. Yeah. Well, you certainly did barrel through it. I mean, sometimes I feel like that's what it takes for people to have that epiphany too, is maybe they need that moment of just like, oh my God, I have that choice. Like you said, of that choice between giving into the pressure, caving in, giving up on yourself, you know, or saying I can do this and and having that faith in your abilities, your talents, what you can bring, what, what you're passionate about and and trusting that that's enough. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's, that was probably a big part of what got you through was just trusting in your, in your passion. Right. Right. And it was, yeah, it was all just, you know, I very easily could have even chef Christina, I I fully, they didn't even show it. I fully had a mental breakdown that day. I was, and they have these little confessional rooms, um, where, you know, there's like meat in the background and cheese in the the chair when they get your little, like takes during the scenes. And afterwards, after that dinner service, they had me sit down and I just completely broke down. I was sitting on the floor and chef Christina, the sous chef for the red team came in and she was like, listen, on my first couple of days of Hell's Kitchen, this happened to me. I wanted to quit. Like, she's like, don't give up. You need to get it together. I know it's hard. The pressure's really high. Like when the the cameras aren't facing us, which was very rarely, we were filmed 24 hours a day. Wow. But in those smaller moments, like there is, there's a lot of human connection and reality that happens that you don't necessarily see on the show. And I think that obviously for entertainment, so the editing and what they choose to show and not show is is played in a certain way you know even relationships between um I almost called them characters but like yeah but they create characters you know um they're played a certain way but there was a lot of sincere support in that space also especially from chef Christina and especially from chef Ramsey and our teammates you know so I was fortunate to have that and you know, after that moment in speaking with her, I was like, if this strong, badass woman is telling me that she wanted to give up, I'm sold. I'm staying. That's it. I'm, I'm done. No more tears. I've yeah. Right, my tears. I had to go back out and talk to Chef Ramsey. He's like, are you good? I'm like, you're goddamn right. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's so awesome. And that like gave me chills just like hearing that, you know, that uh, she came in there and, t- and told you that. And I think it almost humanizes everyone around you too, in a way of like, it seems like such a stressful thing, you know, watching yeah. it from the other side, but it sounds like as stressful as it was, like you had this camaraderie and the support, even from chef Ramsey, who has this perception of being very stern and cold, you know, right. it seemed like it was very supportive. And he certainly can be that way. And, you know, people, the number one question, everybody's up, is he really like that? Is he really a you know, an a-hole is yeah. like, no, I mean, I say I have my script because everybody <laughs> asks me, I'm like, he is exactly as he appears. What the difference is that you don't understand the reasoning behind why he's behaving that way. And it's because this show at the end of the day, you know, it is for entertainment, but it's a job interview. And that's really, that's a real actual real thing. He's looking for somebody to run his restaurant. And I think it's easily dismissible for viewers, especially, you know, people who aren't in the culinary industry 
But if you're doing a job interview, aren't you going to ask the tough questions? Aren't you going to have high expectations of somebody who you want to run this huge multi-million dollar restaurant? Um, and I think that gets forgotten a lot, which granted, it's kind of, I guess, good for viewership and, and people like to see the explosive sort of bombastic character that he is. And great, if they can capitalize it, then it's, then it's awesome. But I, I do dislike when people call Chef Ramsay a jerk or say that he's mean or rude because I'm like eh, I don't really think so I have a different yeah. perspective of it <laughs> well of course you do I mean you you know him in person and that's the thing too is I feel like tv can totally you know misconstrue your perception of of everybody and the way the editing is I mean back in the day I was on American Idol like very briefly for um like I made it to Hollywood week and I even saw how they edited things you know to to make them look different or to make them seem different so um, yeah that's super interesting, but I do feel like, I mean, didn't he say to you later on in the season two that you were one of the most, you know, uh, blossomed contestants that he had? Yes. So when he, he pulled me at that was, oh my God, my like whole life. I watch it. I admittedly have sat here and like watched that scene when I'm in a bad mood or like when I'm <laughs> feeling bad, like culinary work is difficult. Being a chef is difficult. So when I doubt myself, it's kind of funny and weird that I have that to look back on where he pulls me into the back room and he's like, listen, I doubted you and I didn't know if you're going to make it, but it turns out that you're freaking amazing basically. And I, I watch it to like reassure myself that it's grounding, I guess is what I'm saying, you know, because I like every other millennial in the freaking world, I have anxiety, you know, and I have worries and there's a lot of pressure that comes along with the, the field that I've chosen. And sometimes you let that stuff get to you and you let it get in your head. So I'm grateful to have that little moment to look back on and say, I'm fine. I was, I was a culinary infant at the time and Chef yeah, Gordon yeah. Ramsay told me I was good. So I'm fine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, it's, it's funny just hearing that too. I think that's not necessarily like something to give an example for everybody, but I think that is an example of your case too, of, you know, you had people around you that had, you know, twice as much experience as you did, or, you know, however many years more than you did. And you still were able to show up because you were just so driven and so <laughs> motivated. And I feel like that's something that's so important for people to understand too, is it's not necessarily just the experience you have on paper, you know, it, it comes right. down to the drive and what you bring in person. So I think that that's so motivating to see that too. Yeah, I like to think that it's it's quality over quantity in terms of experience. And, you know, there's not just in the culinary industry, in a lot of fields, you know, we'll go back to the college thing that we were talking about. If people don't enter the workforce and they're sitting in a classroom learning about a subject, and then they walk into the workforce with somebody who never went to school, but they've been doing that job for 10 years, who's probably going to be able to do the job better person who's already been doing it so it's about an openness of learning and as long as you're willing and able to be a sponge for the knowledge that's coming at you and to not be um I don't know what the word I'm trying to look for is you know there's a lot of people who when they're being taught something sort of have the standoffish nature of like I know what I'm doing oh yeah you know what I mean you Mm -hmm. need to just be humble and be able to absorb it and then tell the people who are teaching you thank you because they're helping you grow I was really, really lucky to have a really, really fantastic mentor who fully took me under his wing, supported me in everything that I wanted to learn and I wanted to do. And I'm also just the type of person who I'm going to ask you a million questions and it's going to be annoying and hopefully you answer me because that's how I learn. And I, I was so interested in it that 
I wasn't ashamed to to walk around and be like, what's this? I'm like, how do you make ice cream? You want to teach me how to make kimchi? Like, how do I smoke a brisket? Because I'm interested and I want to know. And I was really lucky to have people around me who weren't pretentious or protective of their knowledge, because that's another sort of rampant thing in the chef community is executive chefs or people who have been working for years and years don't want to share their knowledge because it makes them feel like they're giving away uh, a part of themselves or like a secret to the trade that's made them as good as they are. And I don't know if it was because I was from a small town or that my mentor, he was older, he was like 65 years old, you know, and he kept saying, it's like, I'm done, you know, I don't want to be creative anymore. You can do it for me. And I'm like, absolutely, I would love to, you know? So I think it just the stars aligned and it, it happened in a way where I was able to absorb a lot of information in a very short period of time. Yeah, it absolutely sounds like it. And I think it also sounds like just taking a step away from your ego, right? Of not being too proud to to receive the knowledge, but also to find someone, right. like you said, that's also not too proud to, you know, share, right. share their tricks of the trade. Because at the end of the day, I think that ego can get in the way of of the learning process too, for a lot of people. And absolutely, obviously in the chef's industry, it sounds, you know, like that's a huge part of it. Yeah. There's a, there's a great deal of intensity involved in the culinary industry through and through, you know, in everything that you do. And it's sort of by nature, it's fast paced, it's stressful, you're behind closed doors. So there's a lot of interpersonal behavior that is considered acceptable in a kitchen that would not be acceptable in any other work environment. So it, it allows for this little extra wiggle room of, of defining like what's okay and what's not okay. It's really unlike any other industry. And every time I try to explain it to somebody who's not in it, it sounds like a freaking nut house, <laughs> which I kind of think that my previous career helps me in this career a lot because I understand the human mind so intrinsically. <laughs> You know, our industry attracts a lot of people who are a little bit more reclusive, who don't want to be seen, who don't want to do customer service, who don't want to, you know, they're, frankly, the the culinary industry attracts people who are sort of on the outskirts of society. Anthony Bourdain put it as the pirates, you know, sort of rough around the edges types of people. And it's always fascinated me, especially once I became a manager and once I became a leader in this environment to tap into the individual needs of all the people in my kitchen. So I'm still sort of flexing those psychiatry muscles in my management position, which I find it's just even more, um, you know, valuable and validating for me to be able to, to use my other background as a tool in my new career. Yeah. I love, I love seeing how what you used to do is, is applying to what you do now. Cause from a big picture, you'd say, Oh, a psychiatrist or a mental health professional has nothing to do with a chef, but right. you take a, bit, a step <laughs> yes. back. You're like, wait a minute. It actually does. I mean, this is one of the main things that, that I wanted to talk with you about is just the, the stress of it all. You know, the mm-hmm. mental, the mental toll that being in that environment takes, especially being on TV while you're basically in, like you said, in the process of this long job interview. I mean, what was it for you? You think that allowed you to stay grounded and and kind of keep your cool as the competition went on? I think that it was having an open mind because I walked in with an open mind and then I I sort of realized or learned the confines of um, the kitchen. Like I said, I hadn't seen the show and I on purpose didn't watch it so that I wouldn't know what I was walking into because I would overthink it. And I would think that I was ready for things that I wasn't for or constantly be looking around the corner for, oh, I know this challenge or, oh, I know what's about to happen. 
I didn't want to do that to myself. So walking in with an open mind and trying my best to like keep my mouth shut about how inexperienced I was <laughs> after the first day. And I realized, you know, and all the girls sort of came at me at the, I think the second day and they were like, honestly, we think you got to get out of here, girl. Like you're too inexperienced. You can't do it. And I was like, that's, that's not fair, you know, cause I did a good yeah, job yeah. that day. But I think, you know what? I, I really, I don't know if I can define what got me through that competition. That experience weirdly was easier for me than working my regular job. And it might've just been the unfamiliarity of it or the excitement or the, the fact that there was an end goal in sight. You know, I'm a competitive person by nature, but only in an environment where the competition is brief and clear and, and lined out in a certain way, you know? So it was sort of the perfect the perfect little medium for me to do what I needed to do. And then after all that negativity, the first couple of days, it just built my resilience and built my, my drive to prove to the people around me that I really respected and, you know, admired all of them and their accomplishments, what they offered, the way that they worked. I was just surrounded by really amazing examples of what I could be in the future. And I was, I was not standing below them. I was standing beside them. So it was just such a confidence boost and such, I don't know, it was a really profound moment for me where I realized that like, I am one of these people, you know, meanwhile, looking at them and saying, oh my God, you're so amazing. Amber's so talented. <laughs> Jordan's so tough. Corey's so like every, they were all so amazing. And the fact that I was standing next to all of them, I think just gave me the boost that I needed to, to power through it and to do everything that I could possibly do to stay there. because. I'm a learner by nature. I want to absorb everything. I'm so interested in food. And I was just staring, like I'm, my eyes are all over the room all the time. I'm like, I'm picking up every little tidbit that I possibly can and learn everything that I can. And that became my goal in the competition. Instead of, you know, I'm going to knock everybody over and beat them. It was more like, I'm here. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know how I'm here, but I'm going to absorb as much as I possibly can while it lasts, you know? Yeah. I I still think it's so crazy that uh, you don't know how they found you. That's so interesting to me. Weird. I mean, it pops into my head sometimes and I'm like, what the hell? Like, I yeah. I try to just not think about it. And there's nobody I can really ask either. Like I can message that casting director, but I'm not sure. Because I'm in some chef like Facebook groups. So I think maybe, and I know that uh, Jordan... Um, who was also on the show is in one of the same groups as me and she thinks they found her through that Facebook group so maybe they found oh. me but I don't know but she also just thinks that so I don't yeah we're all guessing so a lot of the people uh, on our season and I'm not sure if this is true for other seasons none of us applied they just found us all and like wow us <laughs> um, not none of us I can't say that for sure but yeah. a large number of us did not apply to be on that show at all they just like came out of the woodwork and said hey you want to be on Hell's Kitchen and we were like I guess so I don't know sure wow that's I was always wondering like what the like audition process for that would be like do you send them a video of you cooking like that's really interesting when they did that when they messaged me then they sort of sent me through the audition process so we did have to send videos they like make you send three videos one of you you know doing knife work one of you actually cooking something and one of you plating something then you do a really long Skype interview then if you pass that phase, the video phase, then the Skype phase, then they send you to LA for more interviews. And then 
they like have you go see a doctor give you a drug test like have you talk to a psychiatrist to see if you're crazy (laughs) oh my gosh and then if you pass that interview then you go to uh then we went to uh Nevada to Las, uh, Las Vegas and then you were there and I think from what I understand there were still two extra people that got flown to Las Vegas that still didn't make it on the show <laughs> oh that sucks oh I know I feel they must so have been mad. so crushed <laughs> which we actually when we got so they send us little I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about this stuff but I am anyway so <laughs> that's me, okay <laughs> it's nothing like serious but when we got our first toolkit they email us like the photos and stuff and the, the screen caps from the episodes when we got our first toolkit where they sent us all our headshots there were two people that we didn't recognize and I was like oh those must be the two oh no that didn't make it once they got to Vegas that would suck so bad yeah the whole process and then being like mm, never mind yeah oh my god that's like right. that's super extensive Ooh, that's a lot that's, yeah that's showbiz baby yeah so how long was was uh the duration of it in total like how long were you guys in Vegas for I think they when we originally planned it they told us we we're six weeks was like the maximum but I think we were only there for like 22 days or something it was oh, okay pretty pretty brief um I don't know why they would have told us six weeks weird and that whole time too what other people don't realize which just added to the stress was like you don't get to listen to music you don't get to watch tv you don't have a cell phone you cannot talk to your family like you are isolated in this little hell's kitchen bubble and then we had one day off a week on Sundays but we were just in a hotel room and again you can't use your phone you can't watch tv you can't listen to the radio you can't do anything because if they like you know if you watch a tv show or you watch the news and then you talk about it on camera later it dates the show oh wow so for consistency's sake they couldn't have you know they couldn't risk it because if somebody's talking about some juicy gossip and I'm right next to them talking about the news that day and they release it two years later they can't use it so it was just you know you're really isolated you don't have your support system you don't have your coping mechanisms it really takes a lot of grit and determination to stay focused when you the things that you would normally do in your regular life like if I came home from work and I was stressed out I would sit down with my boyfriend, I would drink a glass of wine, I would watch forensic files, and I would calm down and be ready for the next day. And Hell's Kitchen, you have none of that. Like you (laughs) come out of your stressful dinner shift, and you sit in the dorm room and listen to the Blue Team argue. Wow. (laughs) And that's it. (laughs) (laughs) That's crazy. It looked like the Big Brother house too, like how you guys were all kind of just in that pod. In our little single beds. Yeah, they're like the smallest beds. Oh my God, they're ridiculous. I don't know. It emptied out so quickly though. I feel like the first half of the people that left, I like blinked and I was like, there's nobody here. (laughs) What's going on? Yeah, Um, that's crazy. I was kind of curious too. How did you find, you know, some of the other people coped with the stress? Like, were there other contestants that really caved under the pressure? Do you think most people were able to manage it? I think everybody, everybody had at least one moment where they just fully broke down you know whether they showed it on the show or not it really it's really a difficult environment to be in and especially like I was saying without any coping mechanisms whatsoever like your toolkit is empty and you're with a bunch of strangers and thank goodness we had you know the support of each other especially on the red team I found it so incredibly inspiring to have all of those women you know regardless of the fact that we were competitors really really we were all able to lean on each other, which I thought was amazing. Um, 
But there were certain people who had a harder time than others or who caved into the pressure more than others because how can you equip yourself to prepare for that type of environment? You just can't, you know? Um, and I know it's been difficult, especially because, you know, it's highly publicized. We're all exposed on social media all the time. Like I, you know, people are reading Facebook comments and like, you know, people talking crap about me. They hate me, this and that. Everybody has so much negative stuff to say so that it's sort of carried over. Um, even two years later, you're still sort of dealing with those negative emotions that you were happening, having there and dealing with the consequence of an emotional reaction that you had in a very stressful situation two years ago, just happens to be on TV. So now everybody's allowed to weigh in on it now. Yeah, <laughs> it's not, it, not that nice. The internet's a spooky place. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even imagine. I mean, it's like probably for a lot of people, some of the most stressful moments, you know, just being shown to, to millions of people. Right. It's like the weirdest, the strangest time in your life doing the most stressful thing you've ever done where your, you know, your career not is at stake, but your career, your next career move is sort of, you know, I guess at stake would be the, the terminology for it. It's a really difficult place to be in and then to realize later on you know because when you're in the moment you're not thinking about the cameras like we didn't think about the cameras unless we were calmed down we called them Truman (laughs) so they're all behind the double mirrors we're like hey Truman good night (laughs) Truman I think that was Jordan that started that um but you don't think about the cameras when you're having an emotional reaction to something or you're stressed out like you see the boys on our season screaming at each other like they're almost getting in fights and like in the moment you're not thinking about the fact that the entire world not just America, the whole yeah. world is going to see that. It's it's hard, and you know they they rely on that. That's the entertainment part of it because it's reality TV, and this is what people are really like. And that sort of unadulterated, you know, nothing behind the curtain. These are real people is what's so captivating about shows like these. Um, but it still is detrimental to the people who are involved because the internet, basically, <laughs> is the problem. Um, but I think that at the end of the day, standing by it is, is the best answer for everybody. And I think that's what I advocate to, you know, we still all have a group chat. We all talk. Everybody has their moments where people online are getting them down. And I always try to advocate, like, this is a real thing that happened to you. You don't have to explain it to anybody because the people that were there understand what was happening. And you have to stand by the way that you behave. You're a human being. You're allowed to have reactions. And I think that's important even in your regular work and your day-to-day life is allowing yourself to have a reaction to something, even if it's negative, because if you're going to bottle it up and hold it up, first of all, you're being insincere, and then it's going to come back and bite you later if you don't, you know? So if they hadn't exploded on the competition, who knows where that energy would have gone later on. They could have messed up a salmon instead. Why not just yell instead of messing up your salmon? You know, it's, yeah. it's, hum- it's human nature. And to me, it's very simple and straightforward. So I never really had an issue with anybody, but they're all fighting. I don't know, man. People are crazy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think part of it too, like you said, is there's no coping mechanisms. Nobody has, oh, has yeah. anywhere to turn. And so I almost think of it as like a balloon. You just keep inflating the balloon. And eventually oh, yeah. if you don't like slowly let the air out, it's just going to burst if, if something pops it. So right. it seemed right. like a lot of people just reached that burst point and exactly. rightfully so. I mean, it seemed like probably the most stressful environment. So, oh yeah. And it, it's such a shame really too. like, the, I don't know. It's always hard for me because I really, I genuinely just love all of these people. They were all amazing, but watching like extremely talented chefs get eliminated and stuff. I'm like, 
there's no rhyme or reason to it. And it literally one moment, if you mess up, you're out. That's it. Doesn't matter what it is. Like poor Kenneth, the first day, we didn't even see what he had to offer at all because he had a chunk of Parmesan in his, in his uh, pasta because it fell off on the microplane. It fell into the plate and then he was gone. And I was like, that's it. That could happen to anybody. Yeah. So that pressure of like, if I blink the wrong way, they're sending me home. It's just, it was so much, but I don't know. I don't know. I just, I feel like I was comfortable. <laughs> yeah. I was, talking, I was doing another interview a couple months ago. And I think because of my sort of chaotic upbringing, you know, always moving around a lot, not really knowing where we were going to live, what we we're going to do, what's the next thing we're going to eat, like all of this stuff. I, I was sort of preconditioned to be comfortable and cool in a setting where chaos is just raining. You know what I mean? I, and I don't know what's going to come next, but I'm like, it's fine. We'll figure it out as we go. Like what's, what's happening now? Oh, we're getting ice cream dumped on us. Cool. <laughs> Um, I don't have that. I don't have that trigger when, when I'm startled or when plans have changed, I don't have that, that panic button. So I think at the end of the day, that's why really why I was able to last as long as I did is because I was, was yeah. um, collected my chaos is my middle name. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> you certainly seemed very calm. And I think, uh, I think it's interesting to just think about too, how life experience can kind of just shape you for, for oh, what's yeah. coming is like, your career switch probably played a role in, in you being able to manage the chaos. And even like you said, your upbringing is oh, yeah. a huge part of that. And I, I think that's something that people, you know, sort of underestimate within themselves too, is, is the things that, that you've been through in your life and the things that you've sort of carried with you can trickle into any other area of your life and can not hold you back, but be the thing that right. preps you for, for what is coming next. Yes. I think there's definitely this this notion that if you come from, I guess, a less privileged background that you're not going to be able to accomplish uh, the things that you want to do. But in my experience, and in the way that I think about the human mind, like there's plasticity that happens around chaotic events, especially that happen in your childhood, that train your brain to deal with that chaos and that trauma in a way that other, you know, I think, neurotypical people couldn't handle, you know, you're up for the, you're up for the challenge. You're fine to get up and move and change plans at any minute. You know, you, you have a higher threshold and tolerance for uh, of chaos. I keep saying chaos, but that that's what it is. And I think that the, the self-image issue that comes with it is really the biggest hurdle compared to what your physical body and your mind are truly capable of. It, there's, it's exponentially stronger than somebody who has um, you know, had a lot of privilege in their life. And that's, I really, really want to encourage people who come from a background like mine or, or, you know, even a different background of similar circumstances to not doubt yourself because you have so many extra survival tools that really can be put to good use in such an amazing way. If you just allow yourself to feel like you're worthy of it. Um, and I struggled with that for a long time, you know, feeling like I didn't deserve to succeed or I didn't deserve to be on Hell's Kitchen. I had a, a full moment about it. I was like, who am I? Like, I'm nobody from nowhere. I have nothing and I can't go on TV. You have to, that's the thing that you have to fight. You don't have to worry about the actual fight in real life because you know you're going to win that because you've already won. 
over and over and over again. So it's just a, it's a self battle rather than am I good enough to do this competition because definitely good enough for the competition. You've survived so much already, you know, it's ugh, that, that whole mentality just frustrates me so much. And I always want to nurture people that are coming from a similar space as me to really feel empowered and emboldened that they're capable and they deserve that success, like fully and truly. That is so powerful. And that's such a refreshing thing to hear too, is because like you said, I think just our society, sometimes the way it's structured gets people that have been disadvantaged feeling down about themselves, you know? And I think a lot of it stems from this sense of just unworthiness of feeling like you don't live up to a standard or you aren't enough or, or, you know, you're, you're disadvantaged, but, um, a lot of it, I think comes down to just making a choice about who you are you know, mm-hmm. is just stepping into that power. And, and like you said, that you've been, if people that have endured, you know, trauma or hard times growing up, especially in childhood, when it's one of the most like formulative parts of our life, right? right. like that shit matters, you know, really, that especially, stuff- especially in childhood, because your brain is literally physically changing to adapt to that trauma. And yes, it causes a lot of, it causes mental illness, but your brain is still already stronger and ready to deal with the craziness and it's just it's so important to me that people understand like your struggle is your strength no matter when it happened no matter when it's going to happen that is what's building you and making you stronger and the only thing that's holding you back is your image of yourself and you need to support yourself like you would support your best friend or your mom or your brother or your sister like love yourself the way that you 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 know love the people in your life who mean the most and there's absolutely nothing that's going to get in your way. And and frankly, you'll probably be more successful than you ever dreamed of. Yeah, for sure. And I think for a lot of people, it's difficult to, to view ourselves in that same way of like, we can always show up for other people and, and encourage them. And and we don't, you know, beat ourselves up for that. But it's like, sometimes if you're like, oh, well, I can't do that. You know, I can't do the same or, or support myself in that same way. And and it's like this trap within your mind. Oh no, it's way easier said than done. Yeah. <laughs> it definitely takes a lot of practice. And I mean, I still, I can't lie and say that I don't still struggle with that. And I think it's never going to be easy, but it's, I think, I don't know, it's mindfulness, I guess. And, you know, when you have time and space in your mind to, to prioritize those things, it's a little bit easier, but you know, we're young and we're all ambitious and we're trying to work and build our careers. And, you know, in our industry, uh, in the culinary industry, I'm, you know, I'm working 13 hours a day, every day. I don't necessarily always have time to remind myself to be nice to me. (laughs) Yeah. But prioritizing, making time to do that is something that we're all in control of. And, and frankly, in our industry, there's a lot of really rampant uh, ideologies that are that are damaging and really outdated um, that need to be changed. In terms of you know, if you're not here 16 hours a day drinking two Red Bulls an hour, then you're not working hard enough. That whole old school mentality—it's very like machismo, like mm-hmm. boys club stuff. It's outdated. It's antiquated. We don't need it anymore. And the industry, especially after this pandemic, is is shifting. And the expectations of the workers in this industry are shifting. People want to be treated like humans. And I'm here for it. I'm all for it. So I think we're really going to go through a culinary industry revolution in the next couple of years. And I'm I'm stoked for it because that whole mentality of of I guess, confusing a a lack of determination or a lack of grit 
for I need to take care of myself. Like my brain hurts and I need to rest. It's been 16 hours. Can I please go home? You yeah. know, people shouldn't be afraid to, to ask to rest. People shouldn't be afraid to call out when they're sick, you know, and it's, that is the case in our industry. You can't do it. It's the expectation is that you're going to show up unless your leg is literally cut off and that's it. Yeah, it, I, I think it's unhealthy and it, it needs to change. And I think that it's going to. So I'm I'm glad, I'm, you know, I'm glad to be sort of have the audience that I have and to be able to talk about these types of things because it's just, it's not healthy and it's not sustainable. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like the definition of, of a toxic hustle culture. I mean, we yeah. see that in so many other industries too of, you know, especially in like finance and stuff, mm-hmm. just work 80 hours a week, you know, hustle, grind. And it's almost like society has led you to believe that taking time for yourself is is considered being lazy. But I think since the yeah. pandemic has happened, it's forced everyone to to reevaluate, and that Absolutely. people are prioritizing mental health and and self care now in a way that that we never used to, which has me excited. Me too, absolutely. And I think that that shift is going to mean something really, a really drastic change in American culture because it is sort of the American way to work, 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 work. You can retire for 10 years and then you die and you're fine. Like that's the life setup. And everybody sort of has this internal struggle of like, wait, but I want to go on a vacation. Like I want to hang out with my family. I would love to go to my best friend's wedding. And this, this culture says, you're lazy, you suck, you're fired. Like that's, yeah. And I never realized how ridiculous it was. And I think a lot of people are experiencing that mental shift after the pandemic where we all sat down for a minute. Finally, everybody was forced to just sit down, take a minute. We all went, I have so much time to take care of myself. I have so much time to clean my house. I have so much time to speak with my family, you know? And everybody kind of liked it. Is that a crime? Absolutely not. So, you know, we're moving back into getting back into the workforce. You know, everything's coming back up and running again. And everybody's wanting a little bit more of that free time to take care of their minds and their bodies and their families and their interests, you know, experiencing life. And I love that that's happening. And I really hope that it's encouraged and we don't just sort of fall back into the routine of of work, 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 and then nothing else. Yeah. It's like, it's like living to work versus working to live. You know, I mean, you look at other European countries and how people, I forget where it is, but they have the whole month of August off and that's just their holiday. Like people view work so differently in in other places. It's like, hmm, maybe we should be doing things different here. Right. And I'm hoping, yeah, I'm hoping like you were saying, and we were talking about, it's like, I'm glad that if anything positive came out of this horrific situation, this pandemic that we just experienced, I think maybe this could be the the silver lining to that is that the way that our workforce is treating themselves is going to change a little bit. Yeah, I, I think for sure. I'm hoping that, you know, we're not going to resort back to where we were pre-pandemic, at least for the sake of, you know, people in your profession, especially and something that else that I wanted to kind of touch on is like, do you have any advice for, for anyone that's a chef or an aspiring chef of how to sort of manage the the stress of the environment? Cause inevitably, you know, even with work-life balance improving, it's, it's still going to be a stressful environment. So what would you kind of suggest to people? It's difficult just because of the nature of, you know, the people who work in the culinary industry for myself, I, 
I make a point of advocating for myself when I'm feeling overwhelmed or when I'm feeling stressed or if I need a day off or if I need anything. I, I made the mistake for the first few years of my career of sort of grinding my teeth and bearing it. And I ended up putting myself in a position where I felt really unhealthy, that I was exhausted, that my body was suffering, that my mind was suffering. And I had to sort of make a deal with myself and say, I'm not going to do this anymore. I need to advocate for myself and I need to not be afraid of whatever the retaliation is. Um, and I think that's why a lot of people don't say anything when they're feeling that way or they're feeling like they're about to burn out is because they fear retaliation because our industry is very cutthroat. It's very, you know, you work, you show up to work or somebody's going to be mad at you. And I would really encourage everybody who's going through a hard time or, you know, you're feeling like you're going to be burnt out or you're working too many hours or the expectations of your job are too high. Don't be scared to tell your manager or whatever, whatever supervisor you feel comfortable speaking to, whether it be your chef, whether it be your HR person, whether it be your front of the house manager, find somebody in a supervisory position and tell them how you're feeling and what's going on and that you need a solution. You have to stand up for yourself and advocate for yourself because nobody else is going to do it. And there is an expectation in our industry that you keep your mouth shut and you work and you can complain as much as you want to to your coworkers, but nobody's ever going to do anything about it. That's toxic and awful. And if you're in an environment like that, then you, again, advocate for yourself. If they're not willing to make a change to accommodate the needs of your mind and your body, if you want to change your hours, if you want to cut your hours, if you want to go part-time, if you want to change roles in your job, it's the responsibility of the business that you're working for to try to work with you if they want to keep you. You know, if you're a, a valued employee and you do your job well, then it's the responsibility of your employer to make sure that you're safe and healthy. If they can't do that, don't be afraid to leave your job. This is your life. You know, this isn't this, your job isn't your whole life. And if it is, that's a problem in and of itself. <laughs> yeah. That's what I was, I was literally just going to say that like your job isn't your whole life. And even, I think it just comes down to honoring your worth too, of, of right. knowing when you need to stand up for yourself. And that's not something that, that people should be apologizing for, you know? Right. And I'm not, I'm not talking about, you know, running through yelling and screaming at anybody. I'm saying to have an earnest conversation with somebody who is capable of, of, making the change necessary to you know benefit you especially if you especially if you feel like your mental health is suffering in a job it's very easy because there are no physical symptoms specifically to push it off and say I'm fine I'm fine I'm fine but I'm telling you it is incredibly important to take care of your mind especially when you're working long hours it's inevitable in our industry we all do it we know what we signed up for it's so, so, so important to advocate for yourself and trust your body when it's telling you and sending you signals that you need a break. You have to take a break. You just got to. <laughs> yeah. Or else it's too late. You know, it's like you said, right. those little warning signs will just kind of domino effect onto each other until you right. get really sick from stress. I mean, stress can make people sick. So no, and yeah, when, and it will turn into a physical ailment and then you'll, you know, it's easy to brush those off. You're like, oh, why am I so exhausted? Why all I want to do is sleep. You know, my back hurts or I'm getting headaches all the time. Stress has, you know, somatic or physical, physical manifestations in the body as well. 
so just really, I think at the end of the day, no matter what the advice is, tune into yourself, listen to yourself, believe in yourself and speak and advocate for yourself at all times. And that's not just in the culinary industry, that's in your life and whatever job you have in your relationships, everything. You need to listen to yourself and you have to, you know, be your own advocate. You have to be your own lawyer, make your case, you know, you know, you know best how to take care of yourself better than anybody else. Um, and if you don't trust yourself in making those decisions, then that's, you, you got to work on it because nobody's going to do it for you. Yeah, that's powerful. That's, that's like the best life advice right there. You know, be your own advocate. And like you said, it'll affect every area of your life. Like once you start to be confident enough to speak up for yourself, you know, the mm -hmm. world's your oyster. So. Absolutely. For sure. Yeah. Well, this was amazing. I'm just curious what you're up to now. Like, do you have anything exciting coming up that you want to talk about? So actually today I just sent out my first samples of, I own a company called Yellow Jacket Chefware. I've been working on it for about eight months now, um, which I had been wanting to start a chefware company exclusively for women because I felt like they didn't have, we don't have good chef coach options. They're ugly or they're made for men. The <laughs> sleeves are 19 feet wide. I just hated it. Oh my God. And I was talking to my boyfriend last summer and I was like, I just really want to make these chef coats for women. And, and he was like, why don't you do it? And I was like, okay, all right. Um, so after all the hard work, we got an apparel designer and a factory and all this stuff. I just today sent out our first samples. So I'm super excited about that. Um, people can follow at Yellow Jacket Chefware on Instagram and on Facebook. And I've been sort of posting the story as I go along and channeling my Ellen Marie Bennett from Headley and Bennett on the inside as much <laughs> as possible. Um, so that's been amazing. Uh, I just took over as executive chef at Hudson's Mill Tavern in Barnerville, New York, which is super exciting. And so things are just going wow. pretty smoothly. You know, I'm I moving into a new apartment soon. So I'm Ooh. just getting settled in, in New York. I've been here for about nine months um, and everything was sort of crazy for the first few months. But now I feel like everything's really leveling out. I'm really excited about my chefware brand. I'm really excited about supporting um, other female culinarians and as much as they possibly can and looking forward to kind of contributing to, to a safe haven environment for women in this industry because I feel like we are the future of the culinary world there's room for men too but yeah there's a lot there's a lot more women entering the industry lately and I'm I'm here for it I'm all about it yay well I'm here for everything that that you're preaching for as well so I love you know seeing seeing what you're doing. And, and I'm so excited for you. It sounds like you have so many awesome things going on guys. Check out her, uh, her Instagram page. You said yellow. Uh, what was your Instagram? Yellow jacket chefware on Instagram. Yeah. And you can follow me at Shez Nikki on Instagram. That's my, my personal chef page. So you can see all my food creations and me being weird and like making things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i'll leave all the links in the in the description so that uh everybody can check out your stuff but thank you so much for coming on this was thank amazing you. it was so fun we got deep yeah we really did <laughs>